thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Welcome to episode 59 of the Silver Club Podcast. It is PGA Championship Week, the 104th PGA Championship, as a matter of fact. And Southern Hills, the Perry Maxwell Gem in Tulsa, Oklahoma, will be highlighted this year as the great venue for this PGA Championship. Now, we're giving Colin the week off. His Yale Bulldogs have made it to the East Regionals, and they are hosting at Yale Golf Club up in New Haven, Connecticut, So good luck to Colin and his team as they battle to make the NCAA finals out at Greyhawk in Arizona in a few weeks' time. We're going to get to our podcast with great coach Colin Swatton here in a moment, but we've had some awesome Silver Club Golfing Society events recently. We were in Knoxville at Holston Hills, and Scott Knobloch from Charlotte, North Carolina, took home the title. And then we moved to Dallas the next week, and we went to Trinity Forest, really cool core and Crenshaw design in Texas. Dr. Field Harrison took home the title and the medal that week. We give a silver medal to each of the winners of our events. So congratulations to Scott and Field for their wonderful play and moving up our Silver Club Championship Points rankings. We've got so many great events on the Silver Club schedule this year. Just check us out at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. Hop on our website, silverclubgs.com, and we'd love to hear from you. And I will personally reach back out to you, and we can chat about our golfing society where we travel to some of the greatest architecturally significant courses that golf has ever known. We're going to be highlighted this year by our trip back home. We call it the journey home. We're going to head over to Scotland and play awesome venues like Turnberry, Troon. Have a wonderful 36-hole day at Muirfield. Going back to the home of golf and the home of the Silver Club, we will take a little trip over to where the Leith Links existed as well. So tons of fun to be had there, as well as all of our other great venues. Again, just check us out on social media or our website, and we will connect with you very shortly. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the sponsors of the Silver Club, the Turtleson Company. Turtleson has great products and great customer service. You just have to check out on turtleson.com. Putt View Books. If you want to know the runouts through the fairways, the carries over bunkers, the slopes of the greens, all of the great stuff you need to understand about a golf course, go on puttviewbooks.com and check out all the books that they have to dial you in for the next time you play a great venue anywhere around the country. Two Under and the makers of the Joey Pouch, supporting all of your most valuable assets. Two Under, got to check them out. And finally, Torch Eyewear. Lewis Wellen and his team at Torch have handcrafted some of the best eyewear out there. Check them out on torch.com. Lastly, don't forget to download and subscribe all of our previous 58 episodes of the Silver Club Podcast. We've had some amazing guests throughout our time and great coaches like Bob Tosky. Bob Ford, Rick Sessinghouse, and this week's guest, Colin Swatton. He coached Jason Day for over 20 years and has so much knowledge about how to prepare and play this great game we all love and help you and your competitive golf. This is a podcast you've got to listen to. Okay, without further ado, let's get to Colin and all of his great knowledge during PGA Championship Week here on the Silver Club Podcast. 
Okay, we are really happy to have our next guest here on our Silver Club podcast for episode 59, none other than Colin Swatton. Welcome, Colin. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. What a great coach, and uh, you're becoming a really good on the broadcasting side, too, with PGA Tour Live. We've been doing some stuff with that. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into that all really soon, but just really appreciate your time and, and your expertise, really, when it comes to the game. Just talk about your background a little bit and kind of where you started in the game and, and what kind of led you to the coaching platform, which uh, you've been most uh, well-known for over the years. Yeah, well, uh, basically, uh, I, I was always involved in, in sport and always loved playing sport, but my passion was baseball. And I, uh, I really enjoyed playing baseball, uh, even more so than cricket, uh, simply because it was faster. There was more activity. And I'm not sure how much you know about cricket or your listeners know about not, cricket. Not but, much, no. <laughs> but, but, but cricket for most Americans is very slow and you, you don't necessarily get to touch the, the ball. And you could be pretty much out on the field all day and not touch the ball or really? you only get to okay. bat once and things no like fun. that. So No, it is no fun. So, <laughs> so for me... Um, I always found baseball was quicker and more exciting and more fun. But as a an Australian kid growing up playing baseball, you could imagine there wasn't much of a pathway there. And I was given the opportunity at, uh, at a young age to come over to the US and, and do that. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't take that up. I didn't take that opportunity up. And um, my auntie actually was a very good golfer. And she got me sort of started in my game. My dad was a bit of a sort of a weekend warrior, but my auntie was a very good golfer and she sort of, you know, set me, you know, set me on that path. And, and I really enjoyed um, playing golf. And I basically took it up when I was 18 and um, at 20, I turned pro. So um, it was a, a fairly easy transition going from a ball coming at you at 90 miles an hour to sitting on the ground for me. Um, and like I say, I was always involved in, um, bat and ball sports, squash at a high level, tennis uh, also. So it was pretty easy. And then basically um, I took a job uh, as a trainee, golf professional. And I did that for uh, three years. It's normally a three-year apprenticeship to do that in right. Australia through the PGA of Australia. And I did that for two and a half years. And um, I satisfied all the playing requirements, all the testing requirements, things like that. So a friend of mine offered me a job in Singapore um, as a Henry Griffiths fitter. Now, this is going back, gosh, 30-odd years ago. So you can imagine Henry Griffiths was at, at the forefront back then as re with regards to custom-fitting golf clubs. Right. So I took that job in Singapore and um, and basically started fitting golf equipment for, um, for amateurs um, out of Singapore. We went into uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, wow. uh, Thailand. And then we just happened to fit a guy that owned a golf course up in Malaysia and we went up and we were lucky enough to, you know, uh, do that golf course, help finish that off, built a driving range, a three tier driving range and then started my first academy uh, with my buddy. And uh, that's how I sort of got into the, the teaching. And, and so, so to speak, I did my earn my stripes in Asia for five and a half years, uh, five and a half years teaching six days a week, 12 hours a day. And, um, and then from there, I, I came back to Australia and uh, was part of the Carolvin International School, a golf program, um, a golf academy um, back in Australia in Queensland. And they used to have these programs called um, uh, 
golf excellence programs. And what they were is if you were a good athlete, say a good tennis player, a good soccer player, a good football player, a good golfer, um, you're interested in um, aviation or uh, equestrian, things like that, you could go to this school and you could further that. And I took up the position there as director of instruction. And that's where, you know, Adam Scott went through, Stephen Bowditch, Jason Day, Andrew Buckle, um, you know, Aaron Pike, the list goes on. So, you know, that's where I first met Jason. You had so many great people and players go through there. Yeah, it, it really makes me think about how the United States raises their golfing phenoms. And, and how do you see the difference? Now, you're over here uh, in the States. You're obviously not in Australia. You're doing a lot of things in the States here. And uh, you'll hang your hat at Berkeley Hall in, in near Hilton Head, South Carolina. But how do you see the, the difference in how the Australian golfers are brought up as opposed to the American golfers? And what, what are those differences and similarities? Yeah, I think, that, I think there's um, the big difference to me is that we don't have the college system of golf that you have here. So, you know, you, you go through and you play high school golf and then you're like, hey, you know, you're pretty good. And then you might be offered a, a scholarship to a Divi 1 school or uh, a, a Divi 2 school or something like that. And you can go and you have access to world-class coaching, world-class facilities, especially at a big program. You then are able to continue your passion for golf, but at the same time still have an education at a high level. Once we actually finish um, the equivalent year level, then you go to university. We call it university in the in Australia. And there's really no programs for that. So once somebody at the age of 17 or 18 in Australia gets to that age, there's really not an opportunity to further that education and golf at the same time. So it was sort of, um, I guess, a sort of a, a conversation that we had, uh, a whole bunch of coaches had in Australia was to sort of say, well, how do we keep these guys somehow um, under our control and still have the ability to influence their careers? And that's when Golf Australia come up with their initiative to uh, continue their pathway through their Golf Australia um, uh, bridging program for professional golfers. And that's how that started. But I think I think the, the system that is in place here obviously works because it's producing phenomenal golfers and you know you're one of them that come through that that system where you play at an elite level in fact you're the best player in the world and then you (laughs) have that too kind of you to say that by the way thank you (laughs) thank you for reminding me of uh you know (laughs) of a a life gone by but yes thank you (laughs) yeah but but it's you know you go through that system you have the opportunity to turn pro and and you can continue on in that in that pathway but also too is what i notice is that sometimes too is a lot of these players come through this system and then they get out onto the you know they try and either earn their card through the corn ferry tour and then they get onto the pga tour and sometimes they can get lost in in that transition not everyone is a colin morikawa and can just suddenly come out and win or um you know a victor hovland or matt wolf or you know any of those guys that you want to put in that sort of new new breed coming through and a lot of them you know, don't necessarily transition as smoothly. And it was it was those that we were interested in from a fact that Golf Australia is to say, well, how do we continue to do that? And now they've, they have this program involved, uh, this GA program. There's a house in Orlando where basically these golf pros can come in. They can talk with other golf pros, like-minded. They We have coaches in place that they can have conversations with and gleam information with, and hopefully we can, you know, prevent them from 
you know, slipping through the cracks. And I think now that we're starting to see that a little bit more where, you know, we're not just getting a Jason Day come through every now and then. We're starting to get players like Minwoo Lee, Cameron Davis, all of those guys that are coming through and are really surviving the process. Yeah, uh, Cameron Davis, really, uh, really tall, lanky player, so much speed. I mean, I, I think of a guy like him. Uh, I mean, how much of these players, I, I, I saw Cameron Davis uh, at, at Pebble Beach a few years ago, just watching him, and he had this whole team surrounding him. A lot of, it seemed like a lot of analytics going on as well. They got Everybody's got the track man out there and trying to figure things out, but uh, the, the team that surrounds these players, uh, I mean, starting it at that young age, it's, uh, you know, it's like a, it's, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think I think people are starting to understand that it's not a hobby. You know, it's it's a job and it's a career and it's and it's a very lucrative one too. If you can play at the highest level, and just the way that the prize money has changed, you know, obviously since Tiger Woods come onto the scene and and the purses have increased, and you know, the Players Championship now is worth you know almost double it was when Jason won it, and you know, it's. I think they're understanding that they need to do everything a little bit better. But at the same time, too, you know, you, to use another Cameron, you could use Cameron Smith as an example. Yeah. He he tried to fit into the mold of, I need to have a big team. I need to have all these people doing the right thing. I need to be doing certain things to be the best player in the world. And it wasn't until he sort of said, hey, why can't I just be the best Cameron Smith that I can be? And the moment that he started to do that, and be true to himself and be true to who he is and who who plays the best golf when he's like that, that suddenly he really blossomed and now is, you know, ranked in the top 10 players in the world, which is great. Yeah, that, that was some performance at the Players' Championship earlier this year and making every putt, it seemed, in that final round. But 10 birdies, I think, he holds uh, in that final round. But it, you've been around, obviously, some amazing players in your life. You obviously had a chance to coach and caddy for Jason Day for so long. I mean, kind of talk to us real quick about how how that relationship came to be. I know, I mean, it's documented certainly that his, his father passed away when he was a young man and 12 years of age, if I remember right. And just tell us kind of the, the cliff notes of, of how that relationship came together and the, the great fortune that you had with him over the years. Yeah, well, you know, he attended the academy um, at Robin that I referenced earlier, and he started, you know, pretty much when his dad passed away when he was 12. I actually took the position. Um, I was still overseas in Asia when I took that position when my dad actually um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So I came home to be with him, and then I took the job as the director of golf at, at that academy. So basically that's how we sort of became together. And, uh, and then basically it was, it was, um, one of those situations where Jason was hungry for information and was just had a tireless work ethic. And I just gravitated towards that. I, I love that. I don't like these people that sort of think that they're working hard and, and believe that they're working hard, but obviously aren't really working hard. And then the moment that you say, Hey, I think you could work harder. They take a little bit of a pushback to that. So Jason was completely the opposite. He was like, you tell me what I've got to do and I'll do it. And I won't stop until it's done. And, and uh, I just gravitated towards that. Spent a lot of time with him. Um, we had a lot of success early. And then in 2007, um, the decision was made to sort of, or 2006, the decision was made to turn pro and give him somewhere to play. And that's when we started on the Corn Ferry, uh, which was the you know, nationwide back then. Yeah. 
and he won in his first year and finished in the top, I think it was the top 10. I think it was fifth maybe in the money list and that was what got him out onto the, the big show and, and that's how we all got started. But because he was so young, I think he, he still is the youngest winner in PGA history at 18. So, you know, of course at 18 you can't drive the cars, you're not allowed to you know drive the courtesy <laughs> cars around, things like that. So, you know, you can add chauffeur to that list of <laughs> duties that I had also. But he needed you, yeah. Yeah, but I, I used to caddy for him as an amateur, um, so it was an easy transition. And he said, "Well, hey, do you want to come out and caddy for me, and and sort of, you know, uh, we'll travel together and get started, and then, you know, we'll see how it goes." And then, obviously, we just continued to keep having success and success, and you know, and I know him probably better than most would know him, and uh, it was just a really good synergy and a good fit, and it allowed us to still refine our craft and, and grow and become better and better and better to the point where he became the best player in the world, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's about as great as it gets. Uh, no question about that. Uh, now this podcast is really, you know, it's geared towards the, the good player, the player we have single digit handicaps in our silver club golfing society. And they're listening to this right now. And, and they really want to know what does the tour pro do that, the good amateur, even the scratch player, what do they don't? What is that gap or that canyon, really, in some occasions, uh, between those two type of players and how they prepare and how they execute their their shots under the heat of competition? And I think the biggest thing, and I don't think enough of it is done at a teaching level, is to try and educate the student. In this case, you know, let's just say he's a, a professional golfer is to better understand their strengths and weaknesses as it resu- as it comes to um, practice. So you can say to anybody, hey, you need to practice, and they all go out and they all practice, and they all you know get calluses and think that they're working on the right things. But it's really knowing what to work on and exactly what to work on to get the most you know, change. That's the biggest thing, and I don't think that's really highlighted enough. I know I do a lot of schools just with – you know, regular people, and I just explain to them, hey, what do you want to achieve from your golf? And they say, I want to improve by five shots. I'm like, I can get you five shots in a two-day school. That's not that's not hard at all. But then when they turn up to the two-day school and it's all about how to practice and how to, you know, plan out your practice sessions and what you need to be doing with regards to speed control or green reading or chipping or pitching or punker play, that's when they go, well, no, 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 I want to learn how to hit the driver or, or whatever. And it's not it, – so it's not – it's understanding what goes into deciding what to spend your time on mm-hmm. and then how much time is necessary to be spent on those certain aspects of your game. I think that's one of the big keys. And then probably the other key is is just sometimes you need a little bit of luck, a little bit of fortune. Um, you know, you afforded that to Tiger Woods back, you know, in 1996. <laughs> but sometimes it is as simple as that. Sometimes it's opportunity being in the right place at the right time. You know, I – I can reference a player that I work with on the Corn Ferry Tour, and he was actually leading the event, the last event of the year, um, up in uh, in Columbus, and you know made a bogey on actually made a double bogey on the seven, the the seventy first hole, um, and made a four putt by just you know not paying attention, lost that event. The winner of that event was Scotty Scheffler. Two years later, Scotty Scheffler is the number one player in the world. <laughs> the guy I was working with, you know, is contemplating quitting the game. So it's it's it sometimes is is as simple as that. It's like, you know, he wins that event. 
he doesn't four putt and he gets his tour card and he goes on and who knows where he would be at this point. But then suddenly, you know, that opportunity doesn't go his way and it, it's, you know, doesn't reach the success or the pinnacle that he could. Now, you know, we talked about just trying to pick apart your game and understand where you need to practice relative to your game. The tour players obviously have shot link at their disposal with all the statistical uh, understandings of their game. How does the average player figure out what's the best platform or, or way that the, you know, the average country club player can go about diagnosing their game? Probably the best thing that I've seen so far is, to be honest, is Arcos. Um, that's probably the best one that I've seen in regards to um, people don't want to spend the time sitting down and actually entering a round. Um, I was looked at sitting down and entering the round at the end of the day was a good time to reflect. What did I do well? What did I not do well? Why did I hit that shot? Why didn't I hit that shot? I uh, forgot about the wind. Oh, oops, I you know forgot it was four yards up and that's why I came up short and spun it off the front of the green or whatever. So most people don't want to sit down and go through the, the ho-hum of actually filling in a, 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 a sort of a metrics or a card or something like that. So Arcos will actually do all of that for you. Hmm. And the cool thing with Arcos that they're doing now, um, and believe me, I have no affiliation with Arcos at all. I just pay for what I need for a student. But they now generate a report from that data which allows you to then say, okay, this is specifically what I need to work on. Mm-hmm. And and that to me is that link that I think is really going to help these players get better is understanding their game, what they're doing well, but where, where their strengths lay truly and where their weaknesses are mm-hmm. so that then they can turn those weaknesses into strengths and go from there. So I found that Arcos is the best. The putting is still not 100%. You know, you've got to actually go on and put the pin location in and so it knows exactly where you are in space. But um, definitely it's a very, very good platform that, that I use and I try and get my students to use as well, which allows me then to have the information that I need. No, that's that's neat. Yeah, that's a good a good system. Those little things you stick in the end of your – clubs there and they kind of automatically track that's really neat so so for you as a coach you know you've taught players at the highest level you've taught uh you you teach a lot of juniors and a lot of people that are working their way to college and all that but you also have to deal with parents and and you know if if a parent out there i'm sure a parent is listening to this podcast you know how do how do we how do you manage that and and help their expectations with their kids and what are some recommendations for them to maybe not become that overbearing parent that, you know, that, that ultimately pushes their kids away from the game. Yeah. It's funny. It's usually the ones that say I'm not overbearing. I let my child do what they want to do, which (laughs) is actually the worst one (laughs) because they're not. Um, So, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing, you know, and I always have a player parent meeting um, when I start is because I think they both need to be on the same page. Sometimes the parent wants it more than the, the child does. And that's where some of the problems that conflict can start. But I always try and just set expectations and say, okay, here's the reality. This is where, you know, he or she is at that level. I always skills test them. And that way I have real data to be able to say, okay, this is where they plug into the system from, you know, expectation. And then you can you can sort of say, okay, this is what what we need. And I think if you have that sort of honesty and that openness from the beginning, I think you have less problems. I think it's the it's 
the expectations that the parent has and the unrealistic beliefs. Like I have a parent at the moment, a good college player, and he thinks he should hit everything inside 10 feet, you know. <laughs> and it's like the reality is so part of it is education. And I work with the coach at the college to be able to set that expectation too with with the player's parent. So I can send him all the data and say, hey, this is proximity to the pin of the average on the PGA Tour or the average proximity to the pin. So when you're out watching your son or you're sitting there at home watching on golf stat and they're, they're having a, you know, a bad round or whatever, the reality is the reality is and that they're not always going to hit it out of a bunker of four or five feet. And um, because that helps them, sh- you know, not show their disappointment or, or anything, you know, to their kids. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing is they want it sometimes, like I say, more than the the student, the student still wants to have fun and learn and grow, and sure. and I think our part of our role is to is to not make it boring and mundane in their practice, but make it more specific to growth and development and more game orientated. And that that way, I think it makes them want to spend the time on the driving range or around the green or you know on their wedges and make it a little bit more fun. Um, and I think TrackMan's now starting to do that with their the new software and their windows and their games and things like that, where you can have fun and still improve and be, you know, become better at certain aspects of your game that maybe you're weak in without really knowing that you're practicing. You know, we all did it as kids. Like we all sat on the putting green until mom and dad came and picked us up having marathon putting contests, you know, like, Oh, this is to win the open. This is to win the, the PGA championship, but this is win the masters. And we don't realize that all of those little things, you know, doing random variable practice with one ball, having a putting comp at the end of the night where everything's on the line, you know, there you're actually improving your craft without even knowing that you're improving it. And so much of it now is like, oh, I need to be doing my drills and I've got to be doing my putting and I've got to have my mirror out, my rails and my path and, you know, and they get caught up in that and they forget the imagination and the and the, the fun of the game. Yeah, it's the, the competitiveness. I, I know when I was coming up in, in amateur golf, collegiate golf, that I would love to go play for a few dollars, you know. I'd love to go play for something that made me a little nervous. And I like to play more than I like to practice back then. And so you you want to you definitely want to utilize the skills that transfer onto the the competitive stage. Uh, speaking of the competitive stage, this week is the PGA Championship, the 104th edition at Southern Hills. Uh, this is a venue that the players haven't. It's 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 certainly uh, been uh, documented that there's been a lot of changes to the golf course uh, by Gil Hans and Jim Wagner. But since 2007, when Tiger Woods won the uh, most recent PGA Championship that was played there. But I guess my my question is is practice rounds. Now the golf courses, as as these players play different golf courses, week in and week out, some the same, some different. As you know, as a venue like Southern Hills, how can the average player take advantage of practice rounds? Because you know you're out there with a Jason Day, you know, going and learning these golf courses. What are what's two or three things that that players can do to utilize practice rounds better? Um, it's interesting. Some some guys actually are like you, like to play um, and and get their confidence and their strength from, you know, how they hit it maybe in that round or that particular round on that particular course. Like, 
you know, a guy like DJ um, sort of is one that comes to mind where he likes to play a lot and he'll go out and maybe throw a bit of money on it and go out and do his thing. And then you've got the other extreme, like a Colin Morikawa or Jason Day, where we're a little bit more methodical, a little bit more deliberate about the way we go about things. But um, the, the best thing that ever that I did for Jason was to understand where he was strong in his game and where he was weak in his game. And I had the opportunity. Um, I met uh, Mark Brody uh, back in about 2012, 2013, um, and he used to just come out and watch. And he came up at the end of a, a session. We did an 18-hole practice round. He came up at the end of that and he said, look, why do you do the things that you do? And and I was like, you know, I didn't know who he was. And at that time, he was definitely not Mark Brody, head of, you know, strokes gained and, right. you know, the, the analytical genius that he is. But um, we just started spending a lot of time together and he would say, what do you think Jason will play this hole in for the week? And I'd tell him, or, you know, um, why do you choose that club off the tee? And I'd tell him why versus, you know, it's a three wood or a driver or whatever. So I always had Jason playing into his strengths as opposed to his weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time understanding that. So you can't understand that and then apply it to something if you don't know what it is. And that's why you need a metric. You need some way of measuring it. And you reference obviously shot link data that we have as PGA professionals and access to, but the amateur can also do that, or the elite, the elite level college player can still do that. But you need that information first to be able to then apply it to a game plan or a strategy. Then we'd go out and and probably the second aspect of, of what I did for Jace was to I always set him target scores on to, on specific holes in all in all eighteen holes, and I'd say you play this hole in even par, that's fine. You play this one one under, you know and I'd go about it that way. And what it did for him and the way he referenced it was it made me feel comfortable that I didn't have to birdie every hole. And I think this is the hardest part to get people to understand that it's not how many birdies you make in a round of golf, it's how many bogeys or doubles you don't make. Yeah. And and people just don't understand that correlation. They go out and try and birdie every hole. Realistically, it's the winning formula is 19 and 6. If you make 19 birdies and six bogeys in a round of golf, you'll be pretty much the best player in the world because your your birdie to bogey ratio is so much better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, like I did a player in caddy school um, out at Shadow Creek at the end of last year and we had six golf pros in and we had six caddies in for three days and basically went about educating them all about how to become – better at what they do. Now they all had their cards on the corn ferry tour. And a lot of those guys went to that school barring one. And one of those guys actually missed out by, uh, he was the 26th guy. He wasn't the 25th guy. Um, otherwise all four, all of them would have actually gone onto the PGA wow. tour. But, but most of that was educating them to the bogey birdie ratio and understanding that on a hole where you didn't need to make, anything more than one bogey a week was good. And, you know, the U.S. <laughs> Open is probably the best the best example of that. And that's why Jace had a lot of success early at major championships. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you think about the, the two big events that uh, you both won together, the 2015 PGA at Whistling Straits and 2016 players, both, both Pete Dye layouts, right? Both very strategic golf courses. Any coincidence there? I, th I think... 
I think th- there's no coincidence there. Uh, well, sorry, I should say that the coincidence is that if you approach the golf courses correctly and you understand how to play a peak die golf course, I think it'll it it comes to you. Whereas most people they try to fight a peak die golf course, and I don't think you can do that. A lot of peak dies golf courses, and especially the way he designs them, is that all the trouble actually follows the hole, and using it in one direction, which is a forty five. And that means that you've either got to take on that sort of Jack Nicholas mentality of I hit it at trouble and work it away versus then trying to follow, you know, the hazard or the, the line of the hole. So I think if you can give up a little bit of yardage in actual fact to get the ball in position to play, to attack the golf course, I think you can really do well at a peak die layout. I, I know the guys that try and overpower golf courses and especially his design just really struggle and that frustrates them. Hmm. Because they think they should be playing well. <laughs> and the reality is they should play well. Yeah, no question. No question. Now, I mean, you talk about overpowering, though. And I, I think about that. I, I remember watching that PGA uh, back in 15 where Jason was uh, battling Jordan Spieth towards the end there and, and ultimately took the, took the title. He had so much speed in his golf swing. He was one of the, I mean, it, there was like a, almost a, a violence through impact. I mean, distance, obviously a, a huge benefit, but I mean, you think about the wear and tear it takes on a body. I'm not just saying Jason, I'm talking, I mean, all these, all the, all the players that have lots of speed, Bryson DeChambeau has got, you know, wrist and hand uh, issues. He just had surgery on Cameron Champ uh, has had wrist issues. Um, you know, what do you think about this, the, the speed that which golf has evolved to and the, the toll that it takes on the body? Yeah, I think I think it's a good question, um, and it's a fair question. Is I think I think golf and and you so too, obviously from your teaching background, you know that there are there are fads and there are things that sort of become more relevant in in the golf instruction and then less relevant. And depending on the time, it can be the most important aspect of coaching. And right now, they everyone's on this big speed thing with regards to Jace, like it's, he grew up idolizing Tiger Woods. And if you go back to Tiger Woods in 2000, arguably when he was the greatest of all time, he was quick through the ball. He had the fastest hips on tour. He snapped his left leg, you know, and he was arguably longer than he is not now in the current game. But if you, you said, was he, you know, as long in, um, 2010. No, he wasn't. He actually, his length has actually gone backwards over time. But at the same time, that comes at expense of some degree with regards to your body. So I think, I think with Jace, it was more um, an influence from Tiger Woods and the way that Tiger Woods swung the golf club as a kid growing up. But also too is understanding that. It's not necessary. And this is where a lot of instruction, a lot of coaching, and a lot of podcasts and and you know comments made by people in the in social media and on TV, they don't really understand that there is no proof that a golf swing damaged somebody's back or potentially hurt them in any way, shape, or form. Right. The the problem comes is it's a, dis- a disposition that they have early on. Like Jason has uh, hip issues, so if his hip is if his you know, hip is not moving within the the socket or the girdle correctly, then that's going to affect 
his ability or range of motion, right? Irrespective of technique, sure. then then you put in the fact that he has extremely tight hamstrings and tight thorax. So therefore, the segment that's going to take the most rotation is lumbar spine, irrespective of how he swings it. Yeah, you know, it's good that he's now saying that he's swinging in, you know, pain free and things like that. But also, too, he's doing a lot off the golf course to manage that. You know, with regards to what he's having to do from a physical standpoint to actually maintain longevity in the career. So, so it's, I think speed, if you know where it comes from and you know how to generate it, I think can be advantageous because the further the ball goes down the fairway, the closer you are to the green and the closer you are to the green, the proximity is going to be better. That's just the way the world operates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's important, it's necessary, but you also got to understand that you know, it's the player's disposition from a physical standpoint before you even put your hands on them as a golf instructor. So understanding what they come with, but also too is is you're doing something that is not necessarily what the body wants to do. To swing on an incline plane in rotation, the body's not supposed to do that. You know, it's just not supposed to move that way. It's supposed to flex and extend and it's supposed to rotate, but it's supposed to rotate using the correct forces and the muscles and the joints to do that. But we're not supposed to do that on an axis or an incline. So that's, it comes down to two. It's like, was Tiger Woods injured because he hit so many balls? Maybe. Yeah. It didn't yeah. help him. You know, was, <laughs> is Jason Day injured because he hit so many balls and he practiced for so long? Maybe. You know, so someone like DJ that doesn't beat the balls has a, a disposition or a different body type completely to a Jason Day is is hyper mobile and they spend the majority of their time trying to actually make him less mobile compared to a player like Jason that is not mobile at all that's the reason DJ has no not many injuries or has had no injuries per se that's, so that's a good point that's a really good yeah. point you know along those lines of, of like a, a DJ you think about strong grip players I've I've had this this theory that my my initial theory with strong grip players, a guy like Dustin Johnson who's strong grip and then he bows it at the top and you know those sorts of players and their longevity in the game because you have to rotate your lower body so so much more than players with a little bit more neutral grips. Um, I, I've always thought that that those players, you know, you think of a David Duvall, a Paul Azinger, a, a, I mean maybe Lee Trevino is a different. You know, he had some good good longevity in the senior, but, but the, most of the players with strong grips, I feel like their longevity is, is a little bit tougher. What, what have you thought about that? And if so, what do you think? Um, oh, I think you're on the right track. It's like grip to me is one of the most important aspects of teaching. And it's probably something that's undertaught and appreciated because to me, it's the only direct link between you and the club face and you are the club. So therefore, if it's not on there correctly, then you're really asking for the club to be manipulated some other way. So I think definitely, you know, a stronger person that has a stronger grip generally rotates more and they don't even know that they're doing it simply because they have to do it to make the ball go straight. Mm -hmm. All right. So, you know, if, if you take someone like probably Ram is an exception to the rule a little bit too, and there's always going to be those guys that have extremely weak grips and then they figure out what they need to do in order to, you know, and that's why Ram goes from, you know, extension at address into flexion at the top. And then as he comes down, it's super, super shut. 
Well, yeah, now he has to rotate like crazy in order to do that. So you can do that from a, from a, a different position. You know, you can put Jordan Spieth in that sort of category too, really super, super weak left hand. Now, he doesn't necessarily go into the, the, the massive you know, flexion that, that a DJ has or a Ram has or even a Morikawa. So his ability to be able to do that, he's trying to do it now with this new move, and that new move is not necessarily to come over the top that everybody thinks of. His new move is to actually increase that and get that a little bit more into flexion, which shuts the club a little bit early, so then he yeah. can rotate. But he comes through with massive, massive, you know, left arm, you know, flexion. So because of that, you can't rotate the wrist as effectively when the arm's bent, you know, and now that's, that'll be the next trend. We'll be like, we'll get, <laughs> we'll get everybody coming through impact with their arm bent. So to stop uh, face rotation. So, you know, Lee Westwood does it, um, you know, and there's a great example of somebody that just hits it super, super straight because it, you just physically, the joints won't allow that, you know, to do that when that's in, in that much flexion. So everybody's different. Everybody, loads the club different swings the club differently but ultimately i think the big thing too with coaching is just to give the student what they want to give or what they want to see so many coaches come in and want to change everything when realistically the first question needs to be what do you want to see you know do you want to see a high flight a low flight a right to left a left to right whatever because that then determines what you build as the coach and what you employ to be able to create that or make it easier for them to do Neat, neat, neat. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really well said. Um, all right, before I let you go, uh, you've been awesome with your time. I really appreciate that. But if our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more from the great Colin Swatton, where could they find you? Yeah, I don't really have a, a massive uh, um, social presence. Um, uh, I usually sort of just do it all through word of mouth or whatever. But um, basically they can reach out to me on my email, uh, Colin Swatton golf um, at gmail.com. They could get me uh, via Twitter. Um, everyone's been always saying you should do more on social media space, uh, more instruction, more teaching, more videos, whatever. Um, I just haven't, haven't done it because it's just nothing, you know, I was never on social media even when I was with Jason it's just one of those things that I guess I'm not very good at. <laughs> Maybe I need to become better at it. I don't know. But, um, yeah, they could get through me uh, either way, through Twitter or through uh, through email. That's no problem. And you're on the East Coast at uh, at Berkeley Hall, right? Yep. Near, right yep. near Hilton Head. I yep. outlined that uh, a little earlier for sure. They don't have to go all the way to Australia to find you for sure. That's uh, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. Um and then, and then finally, a lot of the stuff you're doing, you're you're getting into the broadcasting world. That's where we met. We did the Mexico Open at Vidanta recently. Uh, I love saying that name. Um, yeah, good. Happy is that <laughs> Vidanta? I actually had I actually had a uh, car driver, and he, he was he was a super super guy. But every day he would critique me on my uh, Mexican accent. He'd say, "No, it needs to be more Vidanta." <laughs> and I'm like, oh, "All righty." <laughs> Uh, that's cool. But but yeah, you're getting into the broadcasting space. I know you're going to be doing uh, some coverage like I will for ESPN for the PGA Championship here uh, this week. Uh, uh, talk about your love of, of broadcasting now, too, and, and really sharing all these stories that you've built up over the years. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was never something that was on my radar, to be honest. Um, I got asked to do uh, the President's Cup um, in Australia. Uh, that was back, uh, boy, when was that? 
six years ago. Um, and I, I said I wasn't available and, and uh, didn't want to be a part of it. Um, it. The timing wasn't right and I wasn't going to be in Australia at that particular point. And then, um, and then it was uh, basically Greg Hoffey um, reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing some? And I did, I think, six first initially just to see whether or not I, I was any good or whether I enjoyed it. And I think the best thing about it is that we get to follow one group the whole day. Mm -hmm. And you, as a coach, you get to see the good, bad, and the, the ugly. Right. You get to see how the round progresses, how it regresses, the ebbs and flows. Um, and you can really get into the round. I think sometimes with you know regular TV coverage, it's more of a highlight package than mm -hmm. necessarily watching somebody craft out a win. And I was lucky enough to cover Jordan Spieth here for the RBC. And just the round of golf and the ebbs and flows that he had and, you know, some good fortune, some bad fortune, um, and, and just see how he switches the momentum, you know, like I'm, I'm not sure if you remember or not, but he got, he tried to drive the green on nine yep. and put it in the front bunker, but it went up the lip and then came down and plugged in. So it was up against the lip, under the lip, and just – that moment and the gravity of that moment from going from I had all this momentum coming through, you know, basically holes four through eight, then suddenly I hit this train wreck on 10, you know, on nine, and then don't take advantage of 10 and, and so on. So it's that's the cool thing about it for me, um, you know, being part of PGA Tour Live in ESPN Plus is that you get to watch the entire round. You get to see these players, world's best, compete, um, and that's really good. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the on-the-ground stuff as well because I think, you know, you can sort of uh, – I can use my skills as a caddy but as well as a, you know, instructor to see things out on the golf course that maybe you can't pick up on TV. Awesome. And you got that great Aussie voice uh, that everybody loves to hear. <laughs> so soothing, so great. But anyway, look, really appreciate uh, all your time, Colin, and – I uh, can't wait to be a part of this coverage with you for this week's PGA Championship at Southern Hills. And, and thanks for being on the Silver Club podcast. We look forward to, uh, you know, talking more in the future. Absolutely. Anytime. Um, I love to talk golf. That's pretty obvious. But <laughs> but um, I love to talk golf. I love to talk instruction and, uh, and things like that. And if I can be of any help to you or all your listeners, um, I'd love to be a part of it. Thanks so much to Colin Swatton for dropping so much great knowledge today on the Silver Club Podcast. We greatly appreciate everything he shared with us today. And we appreciate you, our listeners, for downloading and subscribing all of our podcasts throughout our existence. We've had so many great guests. And if you haven't gone back and listened to some of them, don't be shy. We love bringing you the people that make up the fabric of this great game. Until next time, everybody. We'll bring you another Silver Club podcast real soon.